I was teaching an online class. Part of the class was to download certain applications so they could work effectively you know, online with a group of other individuals. It was a very short course outline I extended to the group. It was a mixed group of people all different ages, from 19 to, I think, 70-something. In this group, I had one person fall so far behind in the first week, they were wanting to drop the class. I became worried. I thought, why? Why are you going to drop the class? There's only been one chapter assigned. How can you fall that far behind? What else could you be doing? They responded by saying, I'm reading everything that you asked us to read, and I still haven't gotten to the first chapter yet. And I said, it's one page. It says, no, not that part, the part on, on the computer where it asks you to read everything. You know, the part of the process where you're asked whether you agree to the terms and conditions. <laughs> this faithful scholar was actually reading the terms and conditions, all of them, for every application that they were downloading. It wasn't the 19-year-old. <laughs> how am I going to keep up? I said, here's how you're going to keep up. Skip it. Skip over that um, moment where you want to read everything. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Just skip it. Agree to it. Agree to the terms and conditions even though you haven't read them. It was very difficult for this individual. Everybody skips that part, don't they? How many of you completely skip over that portion? Come on, raise your hand. Okay. Lawbreakers. <laughs> now, I say most everybody, knowing there's at least one, possibly four, that are going to email me by 6 o'clock tonight letting me know that they are the ones who do read everything. Uh, thank you for emailing me that. Um, in advance. Every time you fly on an airplane, you are systematically shown the various steps of how you already managed to buckle your seatbelt. Then you're asked, please read the instruction on the safety, you know, on the safety, the safety instructions located in the seat pockets in front of you. Look at the sample here. Now, this is what you are supposed to read, what you are asked to read when you sit on a plane. How many of you actually read this? Four. Probably the same four that, no. <laughs> well, like on steps number one and two, I've had people look at these and interpret them just by what they see, even children. And one looks like, open the door and sweep whatever's on the floor out first. Um, Another interpretation for step three appears to be an invitation to water ski. They look at the little triangle thing and they think water skied. Step four with a cloud of smoke. Look at that one. That one looks biblical. Uh, the cloud of smoke, um, someone bowing in worship, a leader, a, a woman, all there, right there on this card with all of the budgets to fly around the world that the General Conference has. At least they could see this. Oh, we all need to read our step-by-step -step manuals, don't we? Children have noticed that when going down the slide, the person did not wait until it was clear before sliding. These don't communicate as well as we'd like to. I've been on planes with many of you, 
and it's a small town. And I watch. I watch. You don't read the cards, do you? You skip it. Right. Some skip reading manuals, eating meals, taking your vitamins, eating your vegetables. Students sometimes skip classes. They skip sleep. And ultimately, skip completely over the possibility of completing college in four years. And if there were a top ten list of things that people skip, somewhere in the list would have to be reading the book of Leviticus. I know that some of you have probably been longing. You're probably mad at Pastor Alex because he hasn't labored with the book of Leviticus for six months. No. Subconsciously, maybe, but I doubt it. Among Christians, I think Leviticus might be, you know, our least studied book in the Bible. In fact, I've known many to say, this year I'm going to read through the entire Bible from beginning to end, and they sail through most of Genesis. They get slowed down in the second half of Exodus, and I don't know if it's the power of suggestion, but when the Israelites start to wander and stumble and struggle, it's like the reader begins to weaken in their own wilderness there. And by the time you get to Leviticus, you simply don't have the stamina. You skip it. Or you stick the Bible back on the shelf. The reason the one-year Bible plans tend to fail by the end of the first month, my theory is because of the book of Leviticus. It's a bit of a showstopper. But a little background about Leviticus, because we're going to go there. First, the title means pertaining to Levites or the priesthood. Now, some of you might say, well, that's for the pastors, but we were just reminded recently of the concept of the priesthood of all believers. That's all of us. That means we're in this one together. Secondly, the content was, an originally, was originally meant to instruct the new nation of Israel um, in worship, in right living, um, so that they might reflect the character of their God and their new king. So when I first started reading the Bible at age 12, we became Christians at that time. My dad um, started studying the Bible, and I was also curious and drawn um, to the book of Leviticus solely for the reason that it mentioned the word feast a lot. And as a 12-year-old boy, feasting was an important part of my life. But I soon became disappointed about how the Bible could complicate something so simple as food. And over time, I've come to appreciate, um, as I've read over and over and looked at this book more and more, now I'm starting to appreciate the good news in this part of the Bible, but it's taken some work. It may be true of Christians today that Leviticus is the least studied book of the Bible, but for centuries, it was the first book studied by Jewish children. It was the basic primary textbook. So, common assumptions about Leviticus, it's just a list of rules, except a lot of what is written is a divine response to real-life situations of the children of Israel as they're wandering through the desert. Two, there's just way too much blood in this book. And if you're squeamish about that, 
you don't like this book. And another claim that it's just boring, impractical, and irrelevant to our lives today. And I would just say to you today, I disagree. Recently, I was reminded of the good news. Yes, the gospel throughout the book of Leviticus. So today, I invite you to look at chapter 19 of the book of Leviticus with me. Take out your Bibles. You'll want to read the whole chapter at some point. I'll highlight a few portions of it um, throughout the course of this message. In Leviticus 19, um, verse 1 and 2, we hear God beginning the chapter by saying, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Then follows a list of do's and don'ts that range from saying something so obvious that you wonder why it's being said to saying something that seems so disconnected to reality that you wonder why it's being said. Why on earth would that be important, you ask? For example, don't make gods for yourself. When you make a sacrifice, do it exactly the way I tell you. Don't defraud your neighbor. Don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Don't slander. Don't do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. So whoever is hitting golf balls in the neighborhood, you came about 10 feet from me the other day. You need to read this, Alex. <laughs> Don't seek revenge. Don't bear a grudge. How about this one? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's right, when Jesus quoted the synthesis of the law, he grabbed Deuteronomy, and the second part of it, he went straight to the book of Leviticus. Don't <laughs> Don't crossbreed types of animals. Don't mix two types of corn seed. Don't even mix fabric to make clothes. On fruit trees you plant. Years one to three, let the fruit, fruit fall to the ground. Year four, give it all to God as an offering. And in year five, now you can eat it. How about this one? Rise in the presence of the elderly. Now, if I asked us all to do that right now, there'd be a range of people standing, right? Mostly just a bunch of little kids because even now I am elderly according to all the high school students. How about this one? Do not mistreat an alien. Treat them as your own people. Or... When you reap a harvest, leave the edges for the poor and the alien. So it's important to ask a couple questions. I'm born to ask, who are the people that needed this message, these types of commands? You saw the range of, of, of content in these commands, even the nature of the way they're asked. Who are the people? What, are, what is it about them that require this very message. Consider what would happen to our culture with 400 years of slavery. Imagine America, the beautiful, 
only 239 and a half years old. What if we were overtaken by another country for over 400 years? We don't even have that much history to go back and look at. After four centuries, there would be no American dream, no baseball, no apple pie. 400 years, generation after generation, our history as a people would be wiped out except for one classification only, and that is that we belong to another nation. We are slaves. Have you ever even imagined what that might be like? Slaves for generations. These are not the people you seek out to find rich insights on the topic of human rights, do you? Before we put Leviticus at the bottom of the list of pressing books to read, we should not only consider the subjects, but consider the source of this book. You can't just tuck this book away. God's voice directly speaks in it. You'll hear the phrase, this is what the Lord spoke to Moses saying many times. So as you read chapter 19, it begins with this challenge. The Lord says to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. There is a passage in the New Testament you're very familiar with that seems to mirror the mood of this sermon, um, this, um, mir mirror the mood of this law right there in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Of course, both may be seriously misunderstood or misused today, but what is inescapable is in both places, Sermon on the Mount and the heart of Leviticus, you have God, Christ calling people to a high calling. Something that seems almost unimaginable. And as you read through this chapter, you'll see three different types of commands God gives to people. The first and most obvious one is what we call a precept. It's a rule, a specific, concrete law given that meets a need in a given time and in a given place. We have rules today like this. Speed limits are precepts. Now, as the safety levels of cars advance and roads get better, and they will get better, I'm excited about that when our streets are done here, I'm going to go so slow I'll get pulled over and then just embrace the beauty of what we're doing here in College Place. It's going to be good. There are rules that are specific. Why does God say don't mix animal breeds or seeds in your field or types of clothing? Even if there were some really practical reason for this back then, the lesson is clear. It's about purity. Having only one ingredient. God is one. Don't mix things. So from the very fabric of your clothes and the food you grow, God was saying, integrate this concept of oneness and purity in everything you touch throughout the course of the day. Why? Because you've been slaves for 400 years and you don't even know who I am. Today I'm wearing garments that are blended. We have breeded a golden retriever and a mini poodle. And I ate a pluot for breakfast. That is a plum and an apricot, I think. 
we often, we often make rules to manage immediate behavior, especially if those who are hearing it don't have the background or the maturity to know why. To a child we say, don't touch the stove. Well, everybody touches the stove. Don't touch the stove. No. And sometimes it's emphatic. No, 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 no. Right? Stop. Child's walking out to the street. Do you give them a physics lesson? Well, if a car weighing 2,400 pounds is coming and... No, you don't. You say, no, stop. Later the question will be why, but for now, don't do this. What? Because your mommy and daddy say so. And at some point, that needs to be good enough until later. You can tell when the precept needs to be adjusted, when your children start to find ways around the rule. Consider the rule. No running in church. You've seen how children obey that rule, but don't obey that rule. You can watch their bodies. Their feet are walking, but their bodies are running. It's like their feet are on fire, but they are going to stay walking. And they're looking at each other, and they're race walking. You see it. We ask them to walk in church because it's reverent. Well, now I have captured video footage of this very thing, but from our head deacon. Now, he is not running, but he's also not walking either. <laughs> and by the rule of the precept, he is in order. But if you just look at the precept or rule, there'll always be a way around it. And notice at the end of that clip, there was our minister of music giving approval. <laughs> it's about your motive, isn't it? As we get older, we know how to get around the precepts, which is why there is another level to the precept or to the rule in the law of God, and that is called the principle. A precept is a specific law for a specific time and place and can change over time. There's a rule of law, that, uh, principle is a rule of law that can be applied to all people, all places, and all times. So no running in church is built upon the principle of reverence. But you can be loud and reverent, and you can also be quiet and irreverent, can't you? The principle of reverence and respect is applicable to all people, all places, and times. And you can imagine what happens when we take precepts and treat them like principles. We'd have to arrest Mrs. Fitzgerald for breeding golden doodles. She broke the rule. Take, for example, the rule, thou shalt not lie. Pretty concrete, pretty straightforward, right? Well, think about it for a minute minute. Notice in this chapter, it says don't lie, but it also says don't cheat. And then it also says what? Don't deceive. That changes it, doesn't it? The more you mature, the more you need to consider the principle. Because you cannot lie and still deceive someone, can't you? And this is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount expands the shalt not murder to don't hate. And thou shalt not commit adultery to don't even 
imagine it. Don't even pretend it. Don't even want to do it. As we grow, the law is meant to grow deeper and deeper in us. Because the third level of the law runs as deep as you can go, there are precepts, the rules, and there are principles, these ideas that you use to apply over time and space in different regions around life. That which you apply that translates to all aspects of life. But the precept and the principle come from somewhere. They come from a person, the person of God. Notice how the chapter began. Be holy, be different. Why? Because I said so? Because it's healthy? Because if you do so, you'll live seven years longer than every, really? Why? Be holy because I'm holy. Don't murder. Why? Principle, because life is sacred. Why? Why is life so special? Because God, your creator, is life. He is the giver of life. Don't lie. Why? Honesty is always the best policy. Principle. But why? God in his very being is true. He is truth. The person of God is the very personification of truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the, the truth, the life. Oh, Heaven railed against the Levites, the ones um, who knew the precepts. Jesus said to them in John 5.39, how do you know the precepts? How do you know the Scriptures so well? And yet the Scriptures testify of me, and yet you haven't come to me to have life. Rules ultimately define a relationship. Every law worth living by is likely linked to the person and the character of God. If we simply pass along rules, some will miss, others will become irrelevant, and we will function like immature children, needing to be told exactly what to do in every place, in every point, in every moment in time. We'll ultimately rebel or find a way around it. Did you notice that in this chapter in Leviticus 19, that the seemingly ridiculous rules, there's a refrain some 15 times where we hear God say, plant your field this way, eat your food this way, sacrifice this way, but some 15 times we hear God say, and know that I am the Lord, your God. Do this, live this way, abstain from that, be this. Why? Because you and I are linked, connected, related. Do because of who I am, because be this way, because I, who am this way, are in you by the very act of creation. Be holy because I, the Lord, your God, your creator, am holy. Last week, um, 
Pastor Alex extended the invitation to help and respond to this need in the community, the children and family members of a couple that were senselessly killed this summer. The invitation was to respond and help. And there are so many moments in the life of a church that you look back to and you think, this is one of those moments that are, is a highlight in your memory. This was one of those for many. The invitation was to help this family. And, I'm a, and I've been asked to give a, a little report on that. Um, last week, right here, in this moment that we had, over $6,000 was donated to help this family. First of all, a very huge thank you for the generous donations. So far, they, will, they were able to use the money for the flowers at John's funeral. The kids were taken shopping and all that school clothes. They purchased and packed up backpacks for each of the kids with their school supplies. The kids especially loved the backpacks, apparently. The youngest one put hers on in the parking lot and was dancing around and squealing right there in the parking lot. It looks like with what was given, they will be able to pay for the final amount for Jeanette's service. And the families are so grateful. With tears, grandmother and Jeanette's sister send their heartfelt thanks to this con congregation. And the oldest one stopped uh, Marcy Knopf, the principal, on the way out uh, before she left yesterday and quietly asked that she extend his appreciation to this church. And there's more to do, and more has happened. I mean, people went up to volunteer. The, ex the extent of ministry was well beyond the finances that we supported in the moment. It's continued with people and hands-on. But we're asked to pray for especially one kid. They're not in a good place, as you might understand. Now, my question is, do you ever wonder why that moment felt so good or, or felt right? When, when you give, when you love, when you heal, when you help, when the need of others matters more than your own comfort and security, you embrace the you, the part of you that is handcrafted by God, the part of God's character imbued in everyone born of a woman. When you participate, you embrace your identity as a part of the family of the Almighty Creator. As we live out these impulses that really do come from a divine nature in us, we grow into the skin that God imagined us to be our true identity. We all have competing impulses of sin. We all have it. And if you don't think you do, you're probably and more likely in trouble than anyone else. But to know what you are capable of is healthy. To live after what you are intended to be is the challenge of the book of Leviticus. Notice a few beautiful laws in Leviticus that often get skipped over, like this one. Don't slander and don't slander another believer. 
I've been a, I've been a believer for a long time now, and I'm frustrated by the slander in the last few years that seems to just peal like trumpets. What if we were to just apply verse 16? Don't slander your brother or sister. Or don't harm your neighbor. Verse 17, don't hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Or verse 32, stand in the presence of the aged. Now, if we all stand up and sit down, I mean, what's the principle? We can't. Why? Why do we do that? Because they paid for the seats that you're sitting in. Because the life that we live, young people, has been made good and possible by those who go before us. The same will happen to you should you live long enough to receive that honor. When a foreigner <laughs> resides among you, verse 33, this is one of my favorites, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, don't mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do you remember? I am the Lord your God. Last spring, we decided to put just one of these laws into practice. And in verse 9 and 10, God says, when you reap a harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So in response to this, we carved out a piece of property across from Walla Walla Valley Academy and planted a garden. Jeff and Amy Dietrich, John Bleth, Greg Smith, faithful people in this community resonated with this command, this rule, and we started a garden called The Edge. So if God says, leave the edge for others, we grew one full edge. All of the produce of this garden has been given away. Much of it has gone to specific families who have needs, single parents. Sometimes it's so hard to take the time to eat fresh vegetables because it's expensive to eat fresh vegetables. It's time-consuming. It takes effort. And really, at the end of the day and at the end of the week, that might be just the hardest thing to muster. Money, time, and effort. We've had, I know I've delivered well over 50 baskets myself, but Karina Cole's probably doubled that just from the edge, from this garden. And that's not counting those people who just go in and, and take it because they've been invited to. Leave the edge for others. That's the precept. Why? It's the principle of generosity and kindness. Because when you act like family, you embrace the most salient part of what it means to be human, the best part, the Levitical part. Maybe we could reflect today on what lies beneath the rules we grew up with. 
the things that we've known from Scripture. Find, find your way to the principle. What is this really saying? What can we apply other places? And don't stop. Don't stop in your reflection until you find the person who embodies that truth and invites you to embrace the part of you that is related to your Creator. This is the image of God in us. To respond in this manner re resonates with me. I was the, the me that I was created to be. While the law of sin does still live in me, so is God's image. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It is the makeup of our being. And I don't know which side of the brain it's located on, but when I release the oppressed, when I give a cup of cool water, when I bend my life to support the broken, I taste, I feel, I experience, I live, I ache, I flesh out the very nature of God in me, and you do in you. Be holy, God says, for I am holy. This is who we are intended to be, born in us. It makes sense now when Paul says, Christ in you, the what? The hope of glory. I feel right, I feel at home, like I finally fit into my own skin when we mirror the ways of God, maturing and growing deep into what He has called us to do. Doing this resonates with our identity if you let it. Be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. If you think of it childishly, it's just a command. But if you think of it more, it's a compliment, isn't it? So we decided to put this into practice this year. Take a law. Live out a divine principle and ultimately live out the person of God that's born in you. Leave the edge of your property for the poor. Find some way to develop this in your life, in your home, in your context. And God's presence, like Shekinah glory, will be with you.